0: Amy and we have a special co-host with me and it's Laura Clinda welcome hi thanks <laughs> thanks for, thanks for uh, sort of jumping in and Andrew and Andrew's move in and Finch is busy with family life so it was yeah thanks for like just yeah coming on and doing this podcast and we have a special guest today Kevin Zabihi I said that right yeah
1: you did you did hello everybody
0: and uh, yeah, and um, today we wanted Kevin on because me and Kevin basically, I well, I found out about Kevin. He put this awesome tweet post up about the difference between the Lebanon civil war and the Iranian revolutionary war, and about women and how uh, Saul treats women in Acts. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Right. Yeah, and it got turned into a uh, a um, an article, didn't it, for CB International? So I want to talk about that later, but that's how I found out about Kevin. I was very impressed with this tweet thread, and then obviously Kevin is Iranian American or American Iranian. Just get you on really and just talk about women, because that was one of the that was what the article was about and the tweet thread about women. Love talking about women. (laughs) We'll talk about women and then uh, persecution and the Iranian church, and just all those, and just kind of throw it all together and just see what comes up in this podcast because that really interests me. All those things really interest me. So, is that all right? Yeah,
1: Yeah, sounds great. Looking forward to it.
0: Okay, well, right. So, first question, then I'm going to ask you is Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, so. uh... I am currently an MDiv student over at Calvin Theological Seminary, been over there since 2019. By trade, I am a IT uh, consultant. I work on information systems for state and local governments for basically anything to do with accounting or revenue. That's my career or whatnot. Uh, I do theology mostly for fun. Uh, and to connect with folks, you know, it's been, it's been great. And Calvin has been really great in, uh, in helping me learn a lot of new things in helping me kind of explore theology, uh, in kind of getting me grounded in, in the historic faith. Uh, Those things have been really great. So I was born here in America, kind of quick life story. I was born here in America, converted to Christianity in my teens. When I did, I began to attend an Iranian Christian church that was in my area. I lived in San Jose, California. San Jose has a huge—I mean, California in general has a big Iranian population. There's actually a little bit of rivalry between the the North and the Southern Iranians within California. If you want a little bit more background, kind of the essence of it is this. During the Revolution— Uh, the people who escaped the country were usually two kinds of people. Because at first, when the revolution began, it was pretty wide open, right? There was a large consensus among the population that the Shah needed to be, he needed to be gone. But who was going to replace him? And many different people had many different ideas. You had a group of people who believed that the country needed to become more modernized and that the Shah wasn't going fast enough. And then they had a, a completely different group of people who thought the Shah was modernizing much too fast and we needed to return to tradition. Obviously, the, the folks that ended up winning out were the uh, were the religious clerics, uh, the uh, Ayatollah and his following. And so after that, a lot of people kind of left the country because that's not what they imagined the future to be going towards. And now they were worried. So the two groups that you see that settled in California, the people who had money so that they were part of the former Shah's regime, they already had money. They had, they kind of took everything they had and settled in Southern California, bought land, bought businesses, were able to set up kind of a comfortable life for themselves down there. They were already rich in Iran and they brought their wealth overseas. Typically, I'm not saying that that's 100 percent of the time, but that's that's how the population of southern of Iranians in that Los Angeles Orange County area is perceived.
0: And were they particularly uh, secular? Were they predominantly secular as well? Or
1: uh, yeah, yeah, no one was really that all that religious. Yeah, um, and and then in the northern part, no, the rest of the is dispersed throughout the nation. Um, they they but they came to get engineering degrees. So they went to colleges all around the U S uh, so a lot of Iranian Americans or, or actually, Iranians who came over to study, came to become engineers. And then of course, when Silicon Valley blew up, they all kind of congregated in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. So the perception, at least of kind of the Northern versus Southern Iranians is that the Southern Iranians were the already wealthy are a little bit flashy. They are. Uh, they wanted to flaunt their wealth and power, and they were obsessed with those things. And that's what they wanted to continue to do. Northern California Iranians are all educated engineers. You know, younger population. So it's a very interesting dichotomy that you see between the two Southern California. That that they are basically the children of. who have inherited a large wealth from parents who have profited from the Shah. And the Shah wasn't exactly loved. So there's a lot, there's some animosity there.
0: So it's like aristocracy, upper classes versus the middle classes that work their way up and to become affluent, you know.
1: More than, yeah, more than aristocracy, There's the Shah was oppressive. The Shah had secret police, the Shah tortured citizens. Again, not as much as they do now, but he did at one time. And so th- they were seen as enablers of a government that was inherently cruel.
0: Mm. And then when it was coming to an end, they fled type thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: they yeah. grabbed all their money. I mean, the they, they basically they converted all their money for those who had it into foreign currency and they fled the country because when the revolution happened, the price of... It used to be that the price of a toman, which is a Persian-Iranian currency, uh, to a dollar was about seven to one. Today, that number is almost in the tens of thousands, I think, to one. You know, imagine if the U.S. dollar fell to the point that it was it was almost worthless.
0: I was just going to say, in terms of, so, you know, you discussed like the Revolutionary War, -hmm. Yeah, civil war, and um, and like I say, you came to my attention about this article, well, this tweet thread uh, that you wrote. Um, So, what were you trying to argue in terms of? I've just pivoted, but you know, what were you trying to argue in that tweet thread that then became an article? If you could explain that now, that'd be great. That's really interesting. So, you mind if I
1: give a little background on on how I came up or how the idea kind of? So the idea struck me when I was reading an article. I think actually from CBE themselves. Uh, They had a theologian named NT Wright, who I think is big in Europe and big in
0: Britain. well-known,
1: yeah, yeah, (laughs) Uh, and (laughs) he's he's a little—he's a little name, but you know, he's a big supporter of women's ordination. And he showed up for a CBE conference where he talked about. Uh, Ken Bailey's Ken Bailey's experiences in Lebanon. And I thought that was fascinating. Ken, I love Ken Bailey. Ken Bailey's one of my favorite. Yeah. Ken Bailey's one of my favorite. If you guys haven't read him, he is a he's awesome. He's basically a scholar who lived in the Middle East for quite some time. And his experiences with Middle Eastern peasants opened his eyes to Kind of the different ways in which the gospel has been misunderstood, right? Because he was noticing that me, with my advanced degrees, uh, was not able to you have the insight. And that there's more penetrating insight from Middle Eastern peasants who were just so intimate with the culture that they just picked up on things that were second, that, that were just unsaid things in the text that they understood. Compared to him, you know, he was doing careful exegesis, but those without proximity to those things, he would have never understood them. You, you you, can teach a language, but you can't teach a culture's relationship to a father. And so there was a lot of that kind of thing where, you know, when, for example, he was talking about uh, the, the, the prodigal son. And he says, you know, it, you you don't understand what what a father what what a child who asks his father for his for his inheritance now means because in America you know in the West we do that all the time you know give me my money and I'll go build something for myself mm. in in that in that culture that's a disinheritance of the father and that means I want nothing to do with you right it is a slap in the face you know most most <laughs> most fathers in that culture upon hearing that would uh, there would be a violent response, let me put it that way. And so, you know, you can teach the exegesis of that passage, but how do you teach that? That's something you just have to be close to and understand in terms of culture. So he spent a lot of time in the Middle East learning the culture and gaining kind of insight into that. And so he talked about his experiences in Lebanon and N.T. Wright was kind of recounting them. And he tells the story of during the Lebanese Revolution, when the revolution was occurring, uh, or the Lebanese Civil War, however you want to describe it. uh, When it was occurring, all the men were kind of went underground. They, They would not pop their heads out because if a man was seen in the streets, he was seen as possibly an agitator. And the government would come down on them and either arrest them and or kill them. And, however, women and children—they walk the streets, no problems. Right? They weren't seen as threats. They were—they were women. Right? They don't—they do grocery shopping. They don't—they don't, you know, lead revolutions.
0: Tamo isap.
1: Oh, just because the culture there—this this is a man's, this is a man's culture. Yeah. This is not this is not a culture fit for for women leaders. So, um, there was no threat of a woman leader. There was no threat of a woman agitator and therefore women were allowed to run freely.
0: So you're talking about in terms so i you say you're talking in terms of like women were quite dehumanized in terms of they were very small and there the expectation of what women would do and wouldn't do is very tiny is that what you're saying about that culture you know in that respect so they could walk along because why would they because all they are is mothers and wives is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, but I'm also saying that it it also in that culture wouldn't be accepted. Like even if, a, even if the expectation was a woman would never rise to this. If a woman said, I'm going to be a revolutionary, no one would follow her. Right. Because the expectation was you're a woman. Yeah. You don't have that capability, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just that the expectations were low. It's that the women themselves didn't participate because they knew they would have no, fo- there, there would be nothing in this. There'd be no followers. No one would, no one would follow a woman into a, a bloody conflict. Just not going to happen, Um, and so he goes to compare this to uh, Ken Bailey does, and Wright is again. Wright is recounting Ken Bailey's story, but uh, Wright tells how Ken Bailey talked about well, a lot of this you see in you know early Christianity when Christ was still alive. You have uh, the women who are able to follow him everywhere, even to the cross. Nobody cared. They, they were allowed to stay with him to the end, uh, but a man, all the men, all his male disciples fled instantly because they knew as soon as he was arrested for being an, an agitator, for being a, a man who claimed some kind of kingdom, uh, some some threat to you know, the Roman rule, They they immediately knew they were going to be hanged with him. Right. They were they were going to be his followers. They were going to be persecuted as fellow agitators, fellow insurrectionists. And so they, they all went underground and they didn't pop their head back up. They didn't even pop their, they only popped their head back up once the women told them, hey, Christ is still alive. <laughs> he, he's back. That was that was the only time they were other than that, they were kind of it describes their life, at least in scripture, as they were kind of going and hiding in homes recounting the days of, of yore, you know, like that's how I imagine it was. Oh, remember when Christ, it seemed like there was a combination of remember when Christ was alive. And man, how did we get that so wrong? We really thought he was the one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: right? It seemed that was kind of the rhetoric that was dominating, or at least that's how I imagined the rhetoric that was dominating the kitchen tables when they were hiding, you know, in their homes.
0: I was going to say, how did that change with with Saul then?
1: So, so that's where it gets interesting, right? Is because a few chapters later, a few chapters, especially if you look at like Luke Acts, because that's kind of written as a single volume of the history of Christ and the Church, right, by the Apostle Luke. And he at first he describes this process of everyone flees, no one sticks around. Right, the women go and they they tend to him, and they they were the ones who went to the grave because. No man would go to the grave. If a man goes, the first question is, who are you? What are you doing here? How do you know this crucified man, this insurrectionist? A crucified man was a rebel. How do you know him? So the women came, and they came to kind of to claim his body, and there they, they saw what they were. So from this, a few chapters later into Acts, so the way that it was written was as a single long form. A few sections later... You have Saul saying, I'm going to put to death every man and every woman who claims to belong to this Mm -hmm. religious sect, this growing religious sect. There's two ways to interpret that, right? The first is that Saul was so cruel that he was just killing women, that he didn't even care. The other way to interpret that, and I think the more compelling one, is he saw women as fellow insurrectionists. That they were leading parts of this rebellion, and that makes more sense when you consider it in the light of later. Paul was was giving churches to Lydia and mm. Priscilla. I mean, those things wouldn't have made sense in the context that he was just so cruel. That he was
0: well, and talk a little bit about Paul, who Paul came up under.
1: Yeah, so so it's also very interesting because in in Acts, I think later in the later passages, uh, Paul brags about being raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, again, Paul's an interesting guy. Uh, he's probably one of my favorite characters, uh, just because he reminds me so much of, like, every Middle Eastern uncle I've ever had. I mean, the bombastic attitude. It's very difficult for me to actually conceptualize John. I don't I don't get him. He seems almost like an ethereal character. Like, like he, he seems so above the fray, I can see Paul, like clearly, the way he talks, the way he behaves, the way he acts, his sudden onsets of curse be everybody who doesn't listen to him, right? Like, I mean, I, I see that all. It's this just how we talk to each other. There are passages where Jesus is talking about, oh, you know, you ungrateful generation, how long do I have to put up with you? And people read that as a very indicting, and I say, I don't know if I read it that way, because what he's doing in the passage is usually an act of compassion or kindness, and then he follows that up with with a proclamation of "I'm I'm done with you people." It seems very it seems very strange, but it makes sense within the culture because that's how that's how we talk. Like that's how my like my mother when my nephew does something mischievous, she will grab him, and hug him, and say in kind of the baby talk voice. The translation would be. Your father is a dog, and I hope his whole line is cursed for a thousand years. Right? And she says this in like a very loving, like in the same tone of voice that you say, like "Oh, you little baby," right? Like that's just how we talk. I see Paul in that same vein. This, the way he talks. The way he's he goes up and down. His his character is very readily apparent to me.
0: And so, is that in relation to who he was taught under? Does
1: that Yes so he brags about being coming up under Gamaliel who was a rabbi in the first century san or sorry in the second second sanhedrin who is a figure of some note right and again Paul doesn't brag about much he he always says you know the only thing I want to brag about is Christ but he brags about being a student of Gamaliel Gamaliel was actually known for being a reformer for being mm-hmm. progressive for his time Reformed for women, gave women far more rights uh, than they had under previous Sanhedrin. He gave them permission to to file divorce from their husbands, which was not allowed at the time. He and then he also expanded the way for the Gentiles too. He had a, he had a passion for Gentiles and women and reforms for those two groups within the temple. We know Paul loved his his teacher. And we know that he was greatly influenced by his teacher because he actually quotes his teacher in scripture. Mm. There's a very famous passage, I'm sure everyone who is somewhat egalitarian has heard it, Galatians 3:28. Galatians 3:28 is actually from Gamaliel. It's not from I mean, it is Paul, it's Paul's take on it. The, I, I would say the origin or at least the inspiration of it was from Gamaliel. So
0: are you arguing basically that because of who he was born under, even before his uh, move towards Jesus, whether people want to argue about whether it's conversion or whatever, but like, you know, when he is persecuting people, your argument is because he was under Gamaliel and Gamaliel was a reformer and pro-women, that actually when he says this, kill the men and the women, it's because he sees them as intellectualists, not that he's just a horrible, evil man that just wants to kill everyone because he's bloodthirsty. That is that your are Yes.
1: Yeah. I, I would say it seems like there's, there's a, a consistent thread in Paul. It's not that before and then after he completely changed his opinion on yeah. women. It's mm-hmm. he was raised under Gamaliel. He had a, from Gamaliel, he inherited a love and re- respect for both Gentiles and women, which carried into his life as an apostle, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he, more than anyone else, talks about women, thanks women, calls them out by name, worked with Lydia, right? He, he more than probably anybody else has, the other apostles, has worked directly with those two populations. I would say that that's consistent with his character, and Theologically, that's consistent, kind of, with our understanding of how we are shaped by our culture and environment, right? And it's very clear to me, at least, that Paul was shaped by his teacher, his first teacher, Gamaliel. His second teacher would be Christ, but his first teacher was Gamaliel, and he shaped him to have a uh, a passion for those for the populations of the Gentiles and the women.
0: In terms of then, when you bring in the revolutionary war in Iran, and you've talked about Lebanon, and you've talked about what Paul believed, how does, the, how does women in the revolutionary war in Iran figure
1: Then all the stories that I had heard of, in the revo- of the revolution in Iran. My parents were very active in the revolution on both sides, uh, and they were in completely different factions, but they were both very active, and they both fled the country when uh, things went sour. But my mother in particular and her family, they, uh, her sisters were, I remember one of her sisters was arrested, uh, mo- multiple of them were arrested. One of them was arrested even in the U.S. because of her ties to the Iranian Revolution. This is at the time where the Shah was still in power and there was still uh, strong relations between the U.S. and Iran. And from what I remember from what my mom described, when my aunt got off the airplane and set foot in the U.S., the FBI was waiting for her.
0: Wow.
1: And I was thinking, it's so interesting because in Iran, the, the women were, were often tortured just, to, just along with the men. There was no women were walking along the streets free while the men were underground. The there was much more of a joint union here. And I started thinking about it, well, at the same time, the Shah's regime in retrospect was much more progressive towards women than other nations at the time, right? And you see from some of my article that I described the reforms that were put into place in Iran far before any of the other Middle Eastern countries. You know, women can vote in Iran. Very famously, women started wearing Western clothing, even things like mini skirts and high heels. And then I started to think about the church in Iran now. And I was starting to look at, you know, I started to do a little bit of research on how is, how, is Iran, how is the landscape of the Iranian church working? Um, I had some connection to the Iranian Church through my old Iranian Church. They did a lot of work with people in Iran, you know, sending information, packaging up sermons, and broadcasting them underground. Every report says that the it's a house church thing. It seems to be all underground. It's mostly led by women.
0: Are you t- sorry? Sorry, uh, just to go back, are you talking about in the like the the late the seventies? What was no I'm talking about now. Okay, so let just yeah, I'm yeah, okay, now. Okay, so I was just gonna say Please. so your argument really, just to like round up what we last said, like the argument was is the the idea in your article, which I'll try and remember to well, I posted it already on the website on the Facebook page, uh, Twitter page, sorry is that Lebanon was more like the pre-Christ or when Christ was dying and the women were allowed to go free and all the men like ran. But then when you come to Paul, well, he was still Saul then, that he was actually, this is more, he recognized there was more liberation for women, maybe because of Christ. And so he was then saying, kill the men and the women. And this is more like the Iranian, that the expectation of women that could do stuff was this is the these are the equivalents and that was your argument basically. And so you're arguing that you're more egalitarian. Have I just outed you here, Kev? Like you're more taken. <laughs> so like you're more egalitarian because that's your one of your arguments is that actually what was Saul was doing was recognizing there was more egalitarian between men and women in this new religious sect. Is that the sort of the bare bones of your argument?
1: Yes. The, the, the only thing I was going to say was that the the two segments, right, the, the split between the before and after, one side resembled Lebanon, Lebanon yeah. and the other side seemed more familiar to me because it resembled Iran. When Paul says, I'm going to kill everyone belonging to the way, that looked a lot like what the what all the stories that I have heard of the Iranian revolution, that they killed women, they imprisoned women, they jailed women because they were seen as leaders in the insurrection. And you have prime examples, and I, I gave some of my article, of women who were very high up in certain political circles who were, uh, e- even, in, even in some of the, the Muslim uh, uh, clerical circles, there were women, in some of the more progressive ones, there were women as high up as like second in command, commanders, Uh, You know, they were very much seen as women who were leading forces and leading insurrection to military coups. That, to me, made a lot of sense. I said, okay, there seems to be a before and after. The before looks like Ken Bailey's experience in Lebanon. The after looks a lot like my family's experience in Iran.
0: Okay, Kevin, let's transition into the Iranian house church movement, because it's, it's women primarily leading it and young women who weren't alive during the revolution. Yes. They have always been under under oppression. So talk about that. What does that look like today?
1: This is everything I'm hearing from reports. By the way, I want to make sure that I'm 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 not uh, putting myself as someone with boots on the ground over there. Um, but everything that I've read and all the reports that I've gotten from you know research online and uh, some of the some of the stuff even from my own church. The 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 women in Iran uh, are leading the 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 evangelistic movement, and they are heading up the house churches there. Iran has always been, again, more progressive than the surrounding nations. When when the Ayatollah took over, it was kind of seen as a shock, right? Uh, he, my mother says, you know, and I say this in the article that he kind of came out of nowhere and took power, so that that progressive streak and the rights that women have had in the nation are still much more than the surrounding nations. And there's still significant resistance to the more oppressive regimes, right? I, I, the, the common joke in, the, in Iran was that, you know, under, under the woman's chador, which is the, the head covering and, the, and their dress, uh, Is basically a club outfit because as soon as they get indoors, they whip that off and they're in full makeup and uh, so it's it, the, the the culture around them was was much more resistant and much more uh, anti 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 women right? <laughs> if that makes sense. When I had heard about the house church movement being led by women, it made sense because the sentiment of the revolution was never really lost in the sense that among the educated population women were still seen as potential leaders that they could do all of these things. The culture didn't change. The government did so that the same culture that kind of has a lot of women to vote for a long time. And, you know, has a lot of women to pursue education for a long time. That didn't stop. I, sorry, I, did, I did some research. I found out that the women were leading the house church movement. And again, like Saul, it was a lot of women being jailed and tortured and persecuted for their faith. Not necessarily like I, I haven't actually heard a lot of stories about men. Uh, there was a missionary from my church that I remember hearing about that he was jailed for a while. Um, but like, if you look online, most of the stories are them jailing women.
0: Mm.
1: And again, that that fits in the context of these are people who actually are causing causing people to panic in the government it is not just you know oh you know they're just you know they're just they're just women preachers right it's th- that is a political message that these people are people who wield some type of political uh not authority but power they they actually have the ability to harm us if we don't shut this down
0: mm. so i was going to say because that's so persecution. Because there's actually a historic definition of persecution. You know, I think we see stuff banded around. This is persecution. This is persecution on on Twitter or social media. And it's like, well, no. There's actually a, there's actually a historic definition of what it means to be persecuted as a Christian. Uh, people can go to church in Iran, can't they? So technically, people can go to church. In Iran. It's not like Saudi Arabia, where there's no churches. In Iran, there is technically churches, isn't it? But you. cannot yes, that it's the idea of conversions, obviously, the issue. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you can yeah just just maybe describe the idea of historic persecution and then how that reflects in the Iranian church.
1: Okay, just to clarify, I am not a I'm not an expert in historic persecution, so I'm speaking of this almost almost entirely anecdotally. So take that with a grain of salt. Look up everything that I say. Make sure that I'm being truthful, but uh, or at least telling the whole story. In Iran. Mm-hmm just to explain what Amy meant when she said churches are allowed. In in Islam, the Abrahamic religions are all totally kosher. Um, You can be a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim. The only thing is if you're a Christian or a Jew, you have to pay a tax to the local Islamic authority to continue to practice your religion, or you can convert. Islam tends to to, uh, focus there Their uh, efforts of conversion and and sometimes, you know, with the sword, at least historically, uh, on pagans, on infidels, uh, polytheists, these kind of people. So in Iran, um, if you were the the, Islam is is has a. Has kind of a, a membership by birth type of thing. You are. Islamic if you're born into a Muslim family. That's who you are, right? You can become apostate from that and but That's who you are. You're not supposed to convert out So if you were born into a Muslim family, which the majority of Iranians are you must remain a Muslim or I should say, you know, you don't have to remain a Muslim, but the expectation is that you remain a Muslim so in Iran there's a large Armenian population or well, Armenians are historically Christian yeah. right the Armenian Orthodox church mm-hmm. so they have typically allowed they are allowed to practice their Christianity and there are churches in Iran they just I think they just have to pay the tax that I was mentioning and so what's kind of interesting is when Iranians convert and they want to go to church and they can't find one in their area, and they want to go to a physical building, a lot of times they will. the Armenians will help sneak them in. And it's a whole process. I don't want to get into it. But you can read, Ken Bailey actually talks about it a lot because uh, he is he was close to the Armenian Orthodox Church, and they described the ways that they would sneak in Iliranian converts into the church to worship with them so that they would have a place to be safe. Proselytation and evangelism, Evangelism is outlawed by everybody. You, you cannot proselytize as a Christian, but if you're born into a Christian, you can remain a Christian. If you're born into a Muslim family, you cannot convert out.
0: So that's where the persecution comes in,
1: isn't it? I don't think it's actually illegal to con. I don't think it's illegal to convert out of Islam. What I do think it's illegal to do. I think the follow up is, well, how did you convert? Who taught you about the church? Right. And that leads to, well, you're going to jail until you tell us.
0: OK, so my last question, how do you because this plays out sometimes on social media, actually. But do, so how do you see the West or America and missionaries work to places like Iran? Um, I'm just thinking because it looks like the Holy Spirit is quite capable of doing what God wants to do and with whom. And is the West actually a hindrance to the gospel in some ways in certain areas nowadays? Has it got to the point where it's? The West is so intertwined with a certain version of Christianity that actually it's that's why it becomes quite unhelpful. I haven't heard much from Iran.
1: No, the, the only missionaries seem to be like the only missionaries I've heard are people from, from our church. <laughs> like yeah. I, I don't hear I don't hear many people wanting to go to Iran, and I think part of that is yeah, my most cynical self. The most cynical part of me is Mm -hmm. like, you you know, people claim they want to die for Christ, Mm -hmm. but there are areas where you can very easily die for Christ and no one seems to want to go there, right? Like, you you can go to Iran and within two seconds you'll be arrested. (laughs) Like, it's very easy and nobody seems to want to go there. Mm -hmm. Everyone seems to want to focus on, you know, whatever. I honestly don't know. I I don't have enough ears there. It it seems to me that the movement in Iran is to some degree largely autonomous. Mm. I've heard incredible stories, conversion stories, about dreams, about Mm. miracles, about visions. Again, take that with a grain of salt. It is Iran. There was a famous uh, quote from somebody that some Iranian was at the border and he was saying that, you know, I'm going to do something here or I have documentation to prove that I'm whatever. And the guy said, if I asked an Iranian for documentation of ownership of the White House, he'd have that for me in a week. Right. And there's some truth to that. Like, you know, I always take stories that come out of that region with a little bit of a grain of salt. But I have heard some more personal stories that are pretty incredible from people I trust. They don't have the resources that America does. You know, no one has spent the time to translate John Calvin's Institutes into Farsi or Athanasius on the Incarnation. Well, there you
0: go. That's, That's you. your next job. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so so Do Athanasius first, please, Kevin. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. So so because that doesn't that that doesn't exist the. The area is, is the, the way the region is developing is largely autonomous, and I would say largely under the umbrella of the Armenian Orthodox Church. The church structure appears Protestant because they've been forced into a house church style because they can't come up for air, and it's mm-hmm. also explicitly Protestant because it's led by women. There are no priests, right? There are no male, male only priests, and it is a, a, a largely women led underground movement. Uh, where people basically sing songs and read the Bible. Wonderful, which is great. Um, but, yeah, so the the the, in, the influence that does come is when the Armenian Orthodox Church helps them out. They seem to be our biggest benefactors of kind of the illegal underground church. So I don't see much, at least I haven't heard of much Western influence.
0: That's kind of, I kind of like, I think that's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. I think good, that's for good for them. I mean, that's the point, right? So God can work with yeah. whom he wants and how you know how he wants, like three women, because he's sovereign and he does what he wants. You know? Right, okay, so we've got the joky little section that we love to do. So I've got a couple of questions for okay. you, Kevin. Are you ready? Go yeah. for it. Right, question one. Mm-hmm. Which one would an Iranian mama want their daughter to marry and have grandbabies with the least? The least. Stephen... Bro, bench okay. press is live, Flutwick. Or Sean, COVID is for those who lack faith. Wait. Who is like the worst?
1: Which one? Which one has more money?
0: Oh, Stephen, probably, I imagine. Oh then yeah. then
1: the other then yeah, that's the one that that's the one that a Iranian mom would want <laughs> their child to end up with. The
0: bench press. Bench press is live. Yeah. Okay, that's a good one. Right. Okay, ready? yes how many tweets does it take to bring down a theo bro how many tweets does it take you well, to me, take down a from theo me from me one
1: yes. from you you'll never do it
0: <laughs> oh really okay that's of uh, interview cancelled what's your favorite one then
1: what's my favorite which yeah, one
0: what's your favorite one tweet takedown
1: uh, well, well, apparently people have been loving my, it's, it's not my most liked tweet where James White had talked about um, what do you call a person who can't do all these things under the government? And I responded, uh, or cannot do all these things. I think he was trying to imply that we are all slaves to the American government. And I said, "Isn't that just describing a woman in your church?" Yeah. And then yeah. he, was, after my after like three hundred or so likes, he blocked me. Like he didn't block me for the first like three like three hundred. After it started to get more than his original post, that's when he cut me off.
0: <laughs> it's so funny that happened to me with gay pews I put a tweet and then I didn't get blocked and then I kept getting notifications it got liked and then eventually I was blocked 24 hours later just vent like yeah. into the ego <laughs> <laughs> all right, right okay my well, last question this is the question we ask everyone that comes on so what language yeah. did the serpent in the garden speak
1: oh English for sure <laughs>
0: Answer. That's that's the quick, quick that's the quickest
1: the quickest way to confuse a command from God is to is to read it in English.
0: Just to clarify, British English or American English? Because it matters.
1: Ooh, I'm gonna say American English because uh, yeah. there's less "yous" and thous and all that good stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to say thanks for coming on, Kevin. It's been really <laughs> lovely meeting you. Like
1: Yeah, definitely. It's looking. been great.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been fun.
1: Hopefully I wasn't too much of a conversational bulldozer. I've heard, uh, I've heard, you know, from surviving in my family, you have to learn to basically hold your own because otherwise you're just going to get railroaded. So mm-hmm. as a result, I've been, I've heard that I've sometimes tend to, uh, to bulldoze the conversation, Oh
0: no, but fine. I learned, but you're I learned fine. that from the women in my life. I'll hold my own, don't you worry. We hold our own, me and Laura. <laughs>
1: I'll just go home
0: and ask my husband quietly. It'll be all right. <laughs> oh, earth is ghetto. I want to leave. I want to leave. Oh, earth is ghetto. Oh, earth is ghetto. Oh, earth It's ghetto, I wanna leave